Hebrews chapter 1 as we continue working through the letter to the Hebrews. We have spent the last two Lord's Days opening up the first few verses of this, this epistle and gazing upon the glory of the Son of God. And as the writer of this letter continues, verses 4 through 14, through the end of this chapter, we will see the superiority of the Son, in, particular, in particularly over, over angels. And we want to hear from God's Word and then spend some moments digging in. So please follow along as I read, starting in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at, my right, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Hear the word of the Lord. Now, the amount of time spent in my undergrad and seminary talking about angels or uh, angel angelology was really minuscule. Honestly, there was not a whole lot of attention given through all of my academic studies on the subject of angels. But we see here in this chapter, the writer of Hebrews, after opening up this letter spends a considerable amount of time focused on comparing the sun to angels. And so I think it's important for us to think about the question, why would this be so? Why, why so much time and energy and words spent, used to, to really hone in on, on angels and the superiority of, of the sun? Now, angels are set-apart ones created by God for service to him. 
They are supernatural beings, and they're described as part of the heavenly host in Scripture. Now, today, in several countries, in Africa, for example, and many other places, people worship angels. The conception of angelic beings may differ a little bit from place to place, but it is commonplace in many countries throughout the world for angels to be worshipped. And this is not something new. This isn't a new trend. And I think that's why the writer spends such a considerable amount of time here. Because kind of taking us back to the context, we identified that the recipients of this letter, the majority would have been Jews, Hebrews, who have been converted. Hebrew Christians. And many Jews living in this time period were heavily influenced by what took place in what we would call the intertestamental period. So that's a big word, but really just the end of Malachi, the way the Old Testament ends, and then the gap of time between that book and the beginning of the new in Matthew. There's this long hundreds of year period of time. And during that time, a lot was happening still within the, the Jewish people. Now, we were, God necessarily was not speaking. There weren't books recorded from his holy scriptures in that time. But life went on, and the Jews continued to live in this time. And during this time, there was a prominent teaching held by those uh, that were part of a, a Dead Sea sect called the Essenes. And their perspective, this is helpful, their perspective envisioned the the introduction of this kind of hierarchy of the, the messianic figures that they long to see come in the Old Testament. So keep in mind there's this kind of hierarchy that they're, they're believing and starting to teach, and this is kind of what it looked like. There was going to be uh, a Messiah uh, coming from the line of Aaron that would be that priest to come. So the promises made, the line of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, there would be one who would come and be that representative. Then you also had from the line of David this messianic promise of a king. And instead of that being one person, that was separate. And so from the line of David, the tribe of Judah, there would be one who would be identified as the Messiah who would rule in a kingly way. And this is where it gets interesting, though. They, so they had one individual in the priestly role, fulfilling that promise, and then also a kingly role. But then they had overarching both of them, the archangel Michael, actually functioning in a more prominent role, even above those two uh, messianic roles. So that that angelic being would, would be the one kind of over this kingdom to come, so to speak. Now, the Essenes, in some ways, almost got it right. In many ways, they got it really wrong, but their influence upon the Jewish people uh, is, is, is relevant, is present in viewing angels, interpreting how we're to identify angels. Are they to be raised up to a point of worship? All of these questions were being raised as Jews were working through this. We see this in the New Testament, Jesus encountering, remember, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, different sects within Judaism that had very different understandings 
of miracles and angels and those who didn't believe, the Sadducees. There was a lot happening within Jewish culture, within the Jewish people. They knew, the Essenes in particular, knew that the Old Testament spoke about the Messiah to come, but they broke that Old Testament messiahship into prophets and someone being a priest and someone being a king. They, they weren't allowed to be brought together. And, and that makes sense to us if you think that it has to come from a certain line. So if it's going to be a priest from the line of Aaron, it, it has to actually be that bloodline. And likewise, from the tribe of Judah, the line of Jesse, son of David. All of that is kind of helping paint this picture for us in understanding what might have been going on with the recipients of this letter in their thinking, in their understanding. They apparently failed to appreciate Christ's triple office, so to speak. Now, Philip Hughes, in writing his commentary, helps both in filling in some of this uh, information that was happening within the context of the Essenes and their influence on Judaism. But then also, he helps us when we think about just the first few verses that we've been looking at the last several Lord's Days. It has been well observed that in the opening verses of this epistle, we have the Son set before us in this threefold character of his messianic office. He is the prophet through whom God's final word has been spoken to us. Remember from our grace verse long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so he is the great prophet. What's so amazing is as we look through Hebrews, we see that he's from the line of Melchizedek. And so the, the author is going to help the people of God understand how the Messiah could actually fulfill the role of prophet, priest, and king. He goes on, as the priest who made purification for our sins. When he made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he is spoken of as the king who is enthroned at the right hand of God. So this threefold office is starting to sh take shape even in the first few verses and helping correct not only the Jews who have been converted to Christianity, their understanding of Christ fulfilling all three offices, but then also he is going to spend time in our passage this morning helping them understand he is to be worshipped, not angels. He, the one who created all things, is the one who is to be worshipped, not the creature, those that have been created. And so against this kind of thinking, the author of the Hebrews in this passage exalts Christ before our eyes. Again and again, you need to go back and look at who he is. He is the heir of all things, through whom all things were created. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the one who upholds all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You've heard this sevenfold description. And if, it, if you were a first century Jew, 
you would hear that and want to make sure what you've just said is actually tethered or anchored to God's word. So they would ask, where, where do you find this in the Old Testament? And that's what the writer sets out to do in our passage this morning. A series of Old Testament quotations showing that the Son is superior to angels in terms of his, his title, um, the obligation we will see of the angels to worship him, their servant role and his divine reign and immutability, and his enthronement at God's right hand is again reiterated in our passage this morning, and it concludes with comments on the angels reaffirming their role as servants to those who will inherit eternal life. And so let's take a few moments and start looking through our passage, starting in verse 4. Now, we did not get to verse 4 last Lord's Day, and there were some who expressed questions about verse 4. After all that we've just heard in the first three verses, what does it mean, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than, than theirs? If he is the eternal son of God, how has he become much superior to angels? It's a good question. What in the world does this mean? Let's, let's look at it a little bit. So we have already said in the first three verses that the author of Hebrews argues that the son is equal to God. He is God. He is eternal. How can you talk about the eternal Son of God having become much better than angels? It is strange language that's used here. And just side note, there was a heretic in the fourth century of Christianity named Arius who built his whole view of Christ as a created, exalted, angelic being. And he utterly misunderstood what the author of Hebrews was saying. And we see that error that is not new circulate even within a lot of the heretical teaching and false religions today. That Jesus, oh, he is, he is worthy of praise, but he is a created being. First among all other creation, but he is a created being, and we want to hold firmly that is not what God's word says about the Son. This whole passage is trying to lay this stark contrast of the superiority of the Son over angels. Having become. So what does having become mean? I believe that it means that Christ was exalted by the Father as a result of his perfect obedience to God. So his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Where did he come from? He has existed from eternity past. And there was a covenant made between God the Father and the Son that the Son would leave heaven and be born a baby. So you see this, this thread throughout Scripture. There was humiliation in condescending and becoming man that led to exaltation. 
And so this having become, it starts to really make a lot more sense when you look at the work of Christ in the incarnation, what he came to do, what he came to do and achieved, God the Father exalted him. So the divine son, we read in Psalm 8, this description that man is made lower than the angels. The son became lower than angels through the incarnation in order to save his people, the offspring of Abraham. And so in order to to understand the beginning of verse 4, your thoughts must be carried back to what has been said about the son in verse 3. Christ is presented as the one who made purification for sin. In other words, as the Son of Man, God incarnate, He came, laid down His life, shed His blood for His own, for their sins to be cleansed, guilt to be removed. Through that work, He has been exalted to the right hand of God. There, think, think about this. This is mind-bending There is now a man enthroned on high. We want to be very careful. He is the God-man. But he was born in flesh and blood. God dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us. There is now a man seated at the right hand of the Father. So this does not, what we're seeing in verse 4, does not relate to his essential being, he is the eternal son of God, but speaks of him in his, his work, his, uh, he was the mediator, his, his, his work on earth. And really to just really ground this in scripture, one of the, the most helpful parallel passages is, is Philippians chapter two. So I want you to just hear a few verses from Philippians two to understand in your mind how verse 4 is, is functioning here. What does it mean? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen to what the Son did, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord." to the glory of God the Father. The more excellent name that Christ inherited through his redemptive mission is the title Son. There is only one Son in this sense. And so in the passage that we have before us, there are Old Testament texts that are grouped in two sets of three followed by a final Old Testament quotation about the Son and a final description of the angels' roles. It's important to note as we're looking through these verses, this is what God the Father says about the Son. Please keep that in mind as we're working through these verses. This is what God the Father 
says about the Son. We first see all um, focus upon his redemptive sonship. So in verses 5 and 6, we hear the author write, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So first, let's look for a moment at the first Old Testament reference. It comes from Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. In the New Testament, Christ is recognized with the title of son in several respects. We see in the New Testament his, his eternal preexistence, referring to him as the son. We see in his incarnation, him referred to as God's son, his birth. We see at his baptism, this is my beloved son. And even at the transfiguration, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Here, this reference, he inherited that more excellent name after his work on the cross. We see this in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, specifically referring to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The son, the mediator, has achieved in his exaltation the supreme name of son and Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, the name which is supreme here, is the name of son. And hear this, this distinguishes him from angels. There, there are no created beings, angels, that are in this same category as the Son, the resurrected one. I will be to him a father, or I will be to him father, and he shall be to me a son. This passage, this reference, comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14 in particular. Now, to kind of take us there just for a moment, where, what's happening in this passage? So to reinforce the testimony of Psalm 2, the author now takes us to 2 Samuel 7, and this is where God's word is delivered to David through the prophet Nathan. Referred to, if you remember, we looked at this towards the end of our uh, 1 Samuel series. This is the, the climax of the Old Covenant. The promises made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 establish God's covenant dealings, his really last covenant dealings until we get to Jeremiah where we hear of the new covenant. And so when we look at this particular passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will be to him father and he shall be to me a son. We see God's revelation through Scripture is, again, progressive. And here we see in God's plan of redemption, it unfolded even more clearly than ever before in Scripture. This is where God promises to be the father to David's royal descendant, who would be to him a son, and God 
through this son would build his house. So when we looked at this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy, this promise, we see come true in Solomon. Solomon was the one that built the house for God. That's the initial fulfillment of the promise, but there's so much more happening here. The initial is through Solomon, but verses 13 and 16 both say this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Three times the word forever appears. This promise or this prophecy ultimately is looking forward to the messianic promise, the messianic son of David, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through him that God promised an eternal kingdom that would last forever. This would be the final and forever king, the son of God. He is the one who builds and governs God's house which we see developed in Hebrews in chapter 3 and chapter 10. Why is this important? The one who, who rules, who builds, who governs is the one who then tells his servants what to do. He is the one seated, ruling and reigning, while angels are doing a very different activity. There is a contrast being again displayed before us. He the eternal son, the only son, is alone to be worshipped. And so that's what we see in verse 6. When he brings the firstborn into the world, we see what the angels are told to do. Now, in verse 6, when he brings the firstborn into the world, some look at that as when he was born, the incarnation, Christ's birth, Others look at that as when Christ will return, the second advent. Wherever you land, I tend to land on the latter, referring to the second advent, the return of Christ. This is what the angels will be doing. God tells them, you will worship the Son. This is what they do. This is hugely important when we're trying to understand who is Jesus. Is he kind of like angels? kind of in the same realm as angels. We need to hear from angels a little bit from Scripture. There are encounters that men have with angels throughout the Scriptures, and I think two in Revelations help us the most when we're talking about what angels do and what the Son does. The Son is the one who creates and rules and reigns and is worthy of worship. The angels are the ones who worship the Son. So it's striking when you see in Revelation chapter 19, remember the apostle John is the one writing. Revelation 19.10, Then I, this is John, fell down at his feet to worship him. Whose feet? It was an angel's feet. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Then in Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, I, John, 
am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Now, it's quite amazing that the apostle John, before an angel, finds himself falling and wanting to, or led to, feeling the need to worship the angel. What's more powerful and straightforward to us is the correction that the angel makes to John. That helps us a lot with our passage. The angels are commanded to worship Christ. The angels know that that's where worship belongs, and they correct man when we get it wrong. So even listen to the mouth of the angels. They know that there is only one to be worshipped, the true God. Then we see as this passage continues, God defines who the angels are, their roles, and then he calls the Son both God and Lord, looking at his divine reign and his immutability. So in Hebrews uh, verse 7, he says, Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is coming from Psalm 104. And Psalm 104 is a creation psalm. Now, this is helpful on a, a few fronts. For the, the recipients of this letter, this is just continuing to strike at this reality. Okay, if this is a creation psalm and God is describing all that he has created, please hear us very clearly that angels fall into that camp. They are created beings. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, the psalm here personifies stormy winds and lightning as the Lord's messengers. Think about wind and think about lightning. There is much activity and angels are the messengers, the servants of God. They serve his purpose. And so as wind and lightning serves God's purpose in nature, so God's angels do his will. I think it's important to, to think about Christ and his experiences with the disciples, those teaching moments where he displays just glimpses of his glory. He is the one that tells the wind and the waves to calm. He speaks, creation listens. Very different category. The angels do his bidding. Just as creation we see in the wind and lightning does his bidding. One other thing, when you think of wind and flame or winds and lightning, creation, this is a creation psalm. What we see in our passage this morning is also this contrast between that that will wear out, mutable, changeable, can come to an end versus God who is immutable, unchangeable, will always be, 
has always been, is, and will always be. That is, that is important for us to just gaze upon those realities. The sun is over here. The angels are over here. Completely different category. Please hear the correct order of the one who is to be worshipped and all creation. But of the Son, in verse 8, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 8, the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, quotes another psalm. Psalm 45, to again prove the superiority of Christ over angels. How immeasurable the gulf which separates the creature from creator. Hear this in verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Remember what I said earlier. This is God speaking. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The triune God, God the Father, speaking about the Son, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We hear the Father speaking to the Son, not as just a created being, but as the eternal Son of God. Then we hear about this scepter, which was an emblem of royal power and authority. The author, using Old Testament passages, are, is just taking uh, strike after strike, building this powerful case that you cannot miss the superiority of the Son over angels. It doesn't stop there. The, the description of uprightness and, or righteousness helps us see so clearly that this is not just merely having all the power but it's a king who uses it in a wise and righteous way, not crooked. He does not show partiality. He is the perfect king who rules and reigns, a king worthy to follow. As the foreshadowed Melchizedek, he will be both king of righteousness. These are descriptions of Melchizedek, king of righteousness and the king of peace. These are the two qualities which will characterize the son's reign. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The suffering servant, the suffering savior, is now the supreme sovereign and the mighty angels are his servants. And then verses 10 through 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. This is taken from Psalm 102. He is the creator, and he is immutable. 
While creation was happening, I want to give us a glimpse from Scripture, Job chapter 38, what the angels were doing. In Job 38, we see what the angels were up to when the Father was creating the world through the Son. This is God speaking to Job in this context. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On, uh, on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? Verse 7, when the morning stars sang together, together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, the angels, the heavenly hosts were worshiping, shouting for joy when God was creating. And as we see this description in these few verses, 10 through 12, this immutability of the sun, this is really applicable to us as believers. Those who have placed their trust in this sun. Think for a moment. The sun's unchanging eternality as God, the eternal son of God, thinking through the lens specifically of his, his uh, fulfillment of the, the office of prophet, priest, and king. One example from his priesthood. Okay, if he is unchanging and he is the one that has made purification for our sins, you've got to hear the finality of that and that he is the one that is interceding for, our, uh, for us on our behalf. Think for a moment of who it is that, that God is helping us understand is the priest, the faithful priest. He is the one who is unchangeable. He is always interceding for us. That does not change. It's not like he started out well and then decided to go elsewhere and do something else. This is good news for believers, encouraging the one who is interceding. He is faithful and unchanging. He is worthy of our trust and our worship. Then we go to verse 13 of our passage. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Verse 13 the Old Testament itself witnesses to the fact that the rejected Messiah is now seated at the right hand of God. And this by the word of the Father himself. This quotation comes from Psalm 110, a psalm quoted more frequently in the New Testament than any other. So I think if, we've, if we recognize that, that it's referenced and quoted more than any other Old Testament passage or psalm, we should go and spend some time reading through Psalm 110, meditating upon it. This is where this portion comes from. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In the Old Testament scriptures, God has invited the Son to sit enthroned in supreme power while the angels serve. The descriptions the, the descriptions that we find in Scripture of the throne of God, the heavenly hosts are very active in those descriptions. 
the one who is seated is being served by the heavenly hosts. That picture the writer wants to ingrain upon his readers and for us. Christ is the one enthroned. All heavenly beings are at his service. They are worshiping the Son. They are serving the Son. And does that not transition so well into verse 14? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? If you've been with us for any time at all, when we talk about having faith in Christ, receiving him by faith, being saved by grace through faith in the Son, we want you to hear that you, if you have experienced that salvation, are in union with the Son. We're told that he is the heir of all things, and we who are in Christ are co-heirs with our Savior. When we think about his resurrection, the New Testament describes him as the first fruits. We're part of that harvest. So whatever experience that he had in his resurrection, those who are in Christ will, glad, will, will, will have that hope set before them that we also will experience the resurrection. So as we look at this passage, there is so much encouragement as we think about now the one seated on the throne who tells the angels, the heavenly hosts, what to do and when, tells them to go and to serve those who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Now, I don't know how you view angels, but when we hear them described, whether it's their function or what they, uh, their job title, all the descriptions, they are amazing beings created by God. They can defy all the natural boundaries that we are bound to right now. And to, to note that we are being ministered to by these angelic beings is quite an amazing thought. I, I want to use the, the helpful work of A.W. Pink here. He says, first he says, this comment that we see in verse 14 is one which most of us do not appreciate as we should. It should awaken within us a fervent praise to God to hear that he bids his angels to minister to us. What an evidence of his grace. What a proof of his love that he sends forth his angels to minister unto us. This is another of the wondrous provisions of his mercy. It is another of the blessed consequences of our union with Christ. In Matthew 4, 11, we read, angels came and ministered unto Christ. After the temptation, the 40 days in the wilderness, therefore, because divine grace has made us one with him, they do so to us as well. What a proof is this of our oneness with him. Angels of God are sent forth to minister unto redeemed sinners. His charge is that that should make us bow and worship the king. It should also deepen our sense of security. True, it may be abused, but rightly appropriated, how is it calculated to quiet our fears? It is used to contra 
contra- counteract, counteract sorry, our sense of feebleness. Calm our hearts in times of danger. Is it not written, the angels of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them? Then why should we be afraid? We doubt not that every Christian has been delivered many more uh, many more times from the jaws of death by angelic intervention than any of us can rightly imagine. The angels of God are sent forth to minister unto redeemed sinners. Then, he says, let the realization of this deepen within us a sense of our Lord's protecting care for entrusting us to his mighty angels. It should awaken within us a sense of wonderment that angels in this passage are presented as those who attend to sinners who have been saved by grace. When we really remember and think about their their exalted rank above all created beings, their sinlessness, those who are not fallen angels, their wondrous capacities, their knowledge and their powers. It is surely an astonishing thing to learn and to grab hold of the reality that they minister to us. This passage is an amazing display of the superiority of the Son over angels. There is only one king, but there are many servants many angelic beings. Jesus is sitting as king, and they are gladly the ones that serve. Christ is the king over the church. Angels do his bidding for the church. They are servants, ministers to believers, those who by faith are inheriting salvation. And so very clearly, the angels are servants of the house of God, Jesus is the owner of the house. He is far above these serving angels. He is Lord. He is the Son. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so very thankful for this word, for your word given to us, for these verses in Hebrews chapter 1, this this epistle, this letter written to believers who needed to be reminded once again of the superiority of Christ, the glory of the Son. And Father, the way that the angels are told to respond should be this morning, we pray, the way in which we respond to the Son. He is worthy of our praise. When we think about your plan of redemption, and the son who laid down his life for his own. Father, please may it stir in us doxology, worship, glorying the the one and only son who is worthy of our praise. When we think about our sins being forgiven and being given the gift of eternal life, those who have repented and believed upon the son, may that stir in us such praise and worship this morning and to know that our prophet, priest, and king is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. May it stir in us 
worship and praise. And then to spend some time thinking about angels ministering to us. God, we pray that all of these glorious truths, you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would would impress them upon our minds and our hearts to build us up this morning, to encourage those who are who are struggling. Father, to fortify our faith, our trust in the Lord Jesus, the one and only, the one who is worthy of our praise. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.